Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook. Today we're talking about a really amazing book called The Darjeeling Distinction, Labour and Justice on Fair Trade Tea Plantations in India by Sarah Besky. The book is published by University of California Press, and Sarah is Assistant Professor in the Department of Anthropology in the School of Natural Resources and Environment and a postdoctoral fellow in the Michigan Society of Fellows in the University of Michigan. The book is an amazing book. I really loved reading it. It's one of those ethnographies that really draws you in. And as you might have guessed from the title, it's about tea pickers in an around Darjeeling in the northeast of India. I had the pleasure of talking with Sarah just a few minutes before. So without any further ado, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Sarah to the show. Thanks a lot for your wonderful book and thanks a lot for coming on. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Great. So before we start talking about the book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you became interested in this topic and what your background is? Sure. So I'm a cultural anthropologist. Um, um, I got my PhD at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in uh, the Department of Anthropology. And right now um, I'm at the University of Michigan um, in both anthropology and the School for Natural Resources and Environment, as well as the Society of Fellows. Um, So as a cultural anthropologist, um, kind of really most broadly, I'm interested in uh, the intersections between nature and capitalism and labor. And so, you know, that translates into, um, you know, how I do my work or how I think about my work and kind of thinking about the stories of stuff, right? The, you know, thinking about the things we use in our everyday lives and really uh, the labor practices and the environmental conditions and, and all of the kind of the background um, of, of, this, of this stuff. So we can call it kind of critical, uh, critical capitalism studies. Um, I kind of like to think about it as, as stuff stories. Um, and, and tea in particular is, um, is particularly interesting to me. Um, you know, again, in the United States, we know we know a lot about coffee, right? And coffee is kind of part of um, kind of the national consciousness, right? A lot of my um, my colleagues who work um, in agriculture and labor, right, have um, their own histories as solidarity workers in Central America, you know, working to break the coffee embargo in Nicaragua and, and whatnot, right? Coffee has this place in the national imaginary. Um, and and but, but we, we know so little about tea, right? Tea is this kind of undifferentiated commodity, right? Even when I go to the, you know, the coffee shop around the corner from my office and, um, you know, I can pick from all sorts of geographical regions of coffee, but I can't for tea. So it kind of some brings some critical in- attention to, to tea as a thing and as a, as a place and as a product. Excellent. Thanks for that. Now, um, we're going to start to talk about the book itself um, a little more and, um, and you're going to talk about Darjeeling and we're going to discuss about, um, I suppose, about, uh, yeah, and about many different aspects of this. But before we go into that, I was wondering if you could tell us what made you want to write this book in particular and also how you went about doing it. Sure. Um, so, you know, the book is, you know, most 
I mean, generally, uh, you know, question, ask questions about fair trade, right, um, and and social justice and agriculture. And, you know, and fair trade is, is thought to be something that is just like holy and like undeniably good, right? And, um, you know, it, it, the book is a story about fair trade, but it's not my intent to kind of rail on or, or, or trash the fair trade project, but to, again, to bring critical attention to it. And, and the first way I kind of do that is um, to bring attention to the plantation and its place within the fair trade system. Again, um, in, in, in fair trade, we think uh, mostly about kind of Latin American coffee cooperatives, right? Um, you know, small farmers, right? Uh, solidarity struggles, histories of revolution. We don't think about post-colonial context and we don't think about plantations. Um, so what I, you know, what I want to do with the book what I, and why I wanted to, you know, write it was to historicize fair trade and to historicize the plantation within kind of um, agricultural development really, really generally. Um, and, 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 and in doing that, um, as an anthropologist, again, as a cultural anthropologist, I want to situate fair trade, um, within kind of a larger social field. And, and so, you know, that's, again, that's what kind of makes this uniquely anthropological compared to other kind of fair trade studies. Um, and, and in that larger field, you know, I want to, you know, kind of look at this very, um, marginal and kind of out of the way place, right? Darjeeling kind of sits on the, the borders of India, right? Um, so not only is the plantation marginal in fair trade, right? Like Darjeeling is, is, um, is mar marginal within kind of plantation production, right? It sits, um, you know, very, you know, in this kind of at the margins of, of South Asia, right? And so for South Asian studies to bring attention to India's margins, to bring attention to um, the Nepali, di you know, a Nepali diaspora, Indian Nepalis with, within, within India to kind of get out of the, you know, the heartland um, and, and, and look at kind of colonial and post-colonial history at the, at the, at the border as well as how, you know, the plantation and, and fair trade and these kind of new international certification schemes are wrapped up in larger processes of environmental change as well as, um, you know, subnational politics, which we'll talk more about. Mm -hmm. And how did you go about getting the data for the book? Oh, sure. Um, so most my method is, um, you know, mostly uh, participant observation, right? Um, so I, um, on plantations, you know, I followed workers and I plucked tea, you know, all day um, with workers. I drank tea on, on Sundays, the day off on plantations. Um, I I went, you know, and I, I went down and I, I did laundry and held babies and went to weddings and funerals and kind of just lived and try to, you know, kind of, you know, just kind of be with kind of the rhythms of, of everyday life, right? And so that was on the plantation. Um, but in, in addition to kind of a plantation ethnography uh, through participant observation, I, um, in Darjeeling town, kind of high up on the ridge, the plantations are all kind of below town. Um, in town, I went to political rallies um, and union meetings. Um, Darjeeling is kind of the site um, of a subnational um, agitation to create a, a separate state of Gorkha land, right? Indian Nepalis are referred to, or or called themselves Gorkhas, right? So Gorkha land is the name of that, that state. So I went to Gorkha land rallies and talked to politicians, right, about, about the Gorkha land project, but also about the place of the plantation within um, this vision of a separate state. Mm -hmm. That's great. And the richness of this, of, yeah, the, the data that comes out of your ethnographic method is really there for, for readers in the book. It's, there's some very, there's some wonderful anecdotes, which I don't know whether we'll get to talk about. I suppose they're the, the things which are best read, which uh, which I'd really want to flag up for, for listeners at home. Now, 
you mentioned two things already. One was this um, walk uh, movement for an independent state, and the other one was fair trade um, certification. And I suppose the other big theme in the book is a geographical indication, which is the exclusive right of tea producers in Darjeeling to call their tea Darjeeling tea. And these are the sort of three themes that we're going to explore and that come up in three of the more substantive chapters. But before we do that, uh, let's talk about a few of the theories or a few of the concepts which you delineate um, in the introduction and this will help us sort of situate situate your work within sort of academic debates that are going on so i think there's three important things which come up in your in your introduction one is the concept of justice one is this what you call the the tripartite moral economy and the other is this third world agrarian imagination so first of all as only can tell us how do you use the concept of justice um, sure. So justice um, is it's like a really elusive concept. And I think that's why it's so interesting to me. We, you know, each each of us probably in our everyday lives, we kind of throw it around, but we also qualify it a lot. Right. We talk about environmental justice. We talk about food justice or transitional justice. Um, and in anthropology, we have a really, really rich and developed kind of sub discipline or, or, or sub, you know, kind of um, specialization um, about the kind of the anthropology of law. Right. Which is explicitly about justice. Right. Um, but in writing this book, I kind of wanted to look outside of, you know, proper juridical justice. And um, I was really interested in how um, justice as a concept is, is thought of often or used as kind of as this kind of thing that means on its own, right? A natural concept, a universalized concept, right? And that's where kind of anthropologists, you know, can step in because, right, we know that nothing means on its own, right? People kind of give things meaning. And so um, I wanted to bring attention to the relationship, um, conceptual relationship between justice and in justice, right? Because how we frame or how we define injustice, right, has, you know, direct implications for what we mean when we say justice, right? And, um, you know, you know, it can, and, and really it's about, you know, it's about context. And justice is a really kind of a futuristic kind of concept, right, if we think about it that way, if, if justice is this, it exists in this dialectical relationship to injustice, right? It's about justice is about an idea for cultural change, right? Because it's, if, if, um, we don't talk about justice as a state we have now, we talk about it as a state we want to see. Um, so specifically in the book, I look at how different actors define justice and frame that transcendence, frame that cultural change from the perceived state of injustice and how and how it's defined. Um, and, and to kind of look, so to look at these tensions and to look at these um, different formulations of justice, but in one place, right? On the Darje- on Dar- Darjeeling plantations, on Darjeeling fair trade plantations, and how one site can be, um, you know, this this kind of um, place that brings together different visions of justice and different articulations of injustice. Um, so to kind of look at these ideas in tension, as always, kind of um, as always, kind of made by people too. <laughs> and how does your idea of the tripartite moral economy fit into this? Sure. Um, so the classic kind of moral economy and, you know, social sciences, right, is between uh, landholders and, and peasants or between, you know, kind of the powerful and the powerless. Um, and, you know, my work kind of builds on that classic kind of binary um, framework, but it brings attention to kind of actual material or environmental relationships, right, as well. Um, so on the plantation, right, the tripartite moral economy, as I'm um, calling it, um, is between land or sorry, excuse me, excuse me, between labor. Um, management, right, those binary relationships, as well as the agro-environment, which, which includes, you know, actual tea bushes and 
forests and soils and kind of that, again, that those that ecological environmental material context. Um, so, you know, again, the binary moral economy looks at reciprocal relationships between landholders and, 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 and peasants or, or, or tenant farmers. Um, I'm looking at the re- reciprocal relationships, not only between labor and management, but between say management and bushes or between labor and bushes, right? So thinking about these, these three-way reciprocal relationships and right to, in, in the tripartite moral economy as a concept, right? I want to use it to bring attention to the fact that the ecological context, right? The material context, like where we are in the world is something that makes a difference for, right? For understanding not only development interventions, right? But what, what justice might itself mean. <laughs> Wonderful. And then so the third sort of big concept that we, that we need to understand is the third world agrarian imagination. Right. And so the my idea of the third little grand imaginary really um, builds upon uh, geographer Julie Guthman's um, formulation of, of an, an agrarian imaginary. And she's talking specifically about U.S. organic agriculture. And she's talking about the fact that, you know, within, you know, frameworks, you know, or understandings or popular, um, you know, visions of U.S. organic agriculture, right, labor is completely invisible, right? Field labor is completely invisible. What we think of when we think about organic agriculture is kind of this um, morally righteous uh, family farm, right? This, you know, this, this individual or kind of family that, that farms their own land and has these, you know, particular connections, um, moral redemptive um, relationships with, with that land, right? There is no labor, right? The, the farmer himself or herself, right, works, works the land and has this relationship to it. But when I try to kind of think about that you know, really important framework for understanding, um, you know, alternative agriculture where I work right up, up in, in India, in a post-colonial context in the margins of India. Um, I kind of, I kind of have trouble applying it because labor really is like too visible to be ignored, right, on the plantation, right, and in fact, right, fetishized, essentialized divisions of labor, particularly of female labor, um, it, it is part of the value of the thing itself, right? Like so, the the icon, right? The, sorry, the label for Darjeeling tea, right? You may, if you pick up a box of Darjeeling tea, you may see that, right? It's this, it's a woman in profile, kind of head tipped with a head basket, holding a tea leaf, right? Like that vision of labor, right, is inseparable from the thing itself. So my, but, but, but it's, um, it's a vision that is, that is historically decontextualized, right? The plantation, um, is severed, right? In these kind of popular, you know, visions, um, uh, from a, uh, from a colonial history, from an oppressive colonial history, from, um, histories of indenture and marginalization and landscape transformation. And, um, and, and, and really, and the fact that today, even today, right. Um, a plantation, right. Is a system in which laborers are, I mean, not necessarily bonded in the same way they were in the 1830s, but tied um, in in a in a not quite free market system in which um, uh, jobs are are inherited right they're passed between kin lines there is no free market for labor right the idea that you can kind of come and go from work as if it was you know just some kind of factory anywhere is it it it, it doesn't kind of hold up right so the third world agrarian imaginary um, you know brings attention to these dehistoricized images and dehistoricized understandings of labor and the environment and 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 brings kind of analytical attention to that separation um, and 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 tries to understand how labor itself becomes consumable in the global south in in kind of in alternative or or just agricultural products uh, from the global south great great and now we have a, a perfect opportunity 
to to historicize. So well, let's let's find out a little bit more about then Darjeeling. I mean, I imagine um, most people, um, including myself, uh, know it's know it has some colonial past. Know it has have, have in their mind some sort of misty mountain sort of image in their mind. But but that's pretty much about it. But it has a fascinating history as you detail. So give us some of those details. Right. So exactly. As you point out, like Darjeeling um, is this little, it's this town high up on the ridge in, um, in the Himalayan foothills of, of northeastern India. Um, but as, as a place, right, as a town, it's, this, it's a remarkable kind of colonial invention. Um, it was identified by British army officers or, um, in the early 1800s as kind of this ideal location for a sanatorium for their convalescing peers, right, suffering, uh, plagued by, right, heat and disease in the plains, Right. Um, this, this kind of cool, misty complement um, to the plains was was part of um, why Darjeeling itself was kind of thought of as a valuable potential um, rest, resting place. And by the 1830s, right, this vision, right, had been um, had become a reality, had become actualized. And the town right high up on that ridge was developed into a burgeoning hill station. Right. Um, kind of one of these these places where um, British uh colonial officers and colonial kind of offices even really decamped for the hot monsoon months, right, the disease-ridden months. Um, and, you know, in the hill station, right, we see um, schools and, and whole families, right, um, kind of resettle up, up to the mountains, right? So Darjeeling was a place not only for kind of colonial servants, but for, for um, their wives and children, right? So there's, you know, the kind of these famous boarding schools, right, up, up in town as well, as well as beautiful veranda bungalows and iron gates and iron fencing and kind of all of the trappings of this kind of um, kind of out, you know, this very kind of British uh, feeling place, right? And it was a place that was kind of made in the vision of recuperative ideals of nature, right? And so, but but that's town, right? And that's kind of the vision of of the landscape you see from town, right, up on the ridge. And as I mentioned before, the if you look below town, right, if you look down into the valleys, you see these green hillsides, right? These sweeping valleys of of greenness, right? And that greenness is is tea, and um, really, you know, it's a, it's a really striking landscape. But when you kind of get up close, you, it's it's only then you kind of kind of realize it as a as a plantation. Um, Right. And shortly after Darjeeling, um, you know, Darjeeling's development as a hill station, right, as this place of convalescence, um, British civil servants uh, began testing various crops up in the mountains to see if they were, you know, exploitable up there, um, including tea. And it, and it became, um, you know, it, 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 tea tested well up in those misty, um, misty foothills, particularly, right, the Chinese variety of tea. And there's two jots or, you know, varieties of, of tea bush, right, that are, that are prominent. Um, there's the Chinese variety, which has kind of coarser, smaller, denser leaves that kind of make a lighter, finer brew, if you will, um, and the indigenous Assam variety of tea, which is um, these, the bushes kind of have these bigger, glossier um, leaves, and the, and, the, and the tea is kind of a little bit more tannic, a little blacker, a little bit more pungent. Um, so Darjeeling was a, uh, was a great place to grow that Chinese variety of tea it, up in the high altitudes, right? Um, so the, the place was kind of light and refined, and, so, and the tea was also, in a way, kind of light and refined. So there's kind of this convergence of place and product um, in Darjeeling that we see kind of in the late 1800s, um, because Darjeeling was kind of thought of as, as a product, um, kind of the, the first tea to be as good as 
Chinese tea. Um, and, and after independence in 1947, um, we kind of see a decline in the industry as, as British capital kind of um, left, uh, left the region, plantations closed, and, that, and this kind of market um, for, for Darjeeling tea started to dwindle a little bit. Um, and it's really only been in recent years, you know, with the um, introduction of fair trade and organic and kind of other um, alternative agricultural projects um, and, and tourism, really, um, that we see and an actually a revived um, or maybe a, a newly, um, uh, you know, thinking about tea as this healthy beverage, right? People kind of, um, you know, desiring tea as a thing, right? Darjeeling has um, seen a resurgence as a product. Um, but still, like, people, you know, come to Darjeeling as um, to kind of experience that, that misty mountain recuperative environment as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sure it's I'm sure it wasn't a uh, intention when you wrote the chapter. This is you're talking here about chapter one. But when I was reading it, I was thinking this would make a wonderful uh, tourist guide as well from one <laughs> tourist because you because you situate all of these histories within a uh, within the actual landscape of, of Darjeeling now with the bandstand etc. and so on. Um, but yeah, that's I'm sure that wasn't there <laughs> wasn't your intention. <laughs> now anyway, let's talk about what you talk about in chapter two. You talk about the rise of what you call business practices on the plantation. So I was wondering if you can tell us what these practices are and how they relate to the ideas of justice. Sure. Um, and so in, in Darjeeling, um, w- when I was talking to tea workers, I was constantly struck by this dynamic or, um, or this between industry and business. And right. And, and Nepali workers, uh, Nepali is the lingua franca of Darjeeling, you know, on, on the plantations. Uh, workers, you know, interspersed industry and business as English words in their discussions. Right. And in their critiques and and business um, is kind of uh, is kind of a catch all term for kind of uh, contemporary uh, quote-unquote neoliberal practices of kind of extracting as much out of labor and nature as humanly possible, right? And whereas industry is this kind of almost nostalgic vision of the past in which, you know, kind of a colonial vision um, in which uh, workers, you know, describe the plantation as kind of more, you know, symbiotically kind of running, right? Those tripartite moral relationships, moral economic relationships were thought to be, you know, upheld at, at every stage, right? And planters, Right, plantation managers and plantation owners were thought to be um, better kind of better human beings and better stewards of the land. Right, if 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 someone needed an advance on their pay or someone needed shoes, right, um, th- those owners would provide for that. Um, but in the in business, right, and so this whole chapter is kind of um, about kind of an, an articulating business. Um, I give I give the example of the age of tea bushes, so like actual tea bushes. Um, And so what's interesting about a tea bush is that it actually has about the kind of productive life of a human being, right? So like, you know, once it gets to be about 70 or so years old, right, it's not as productive as it once was. And workers are kind of really keenly aware of that. And they talk about new young bushes as um, as children, as ungendered children. But when they become like upwards of 80 and, you know, 100 and 150 years old, in the case of some bushes in Darjeeling, right, they're, they're what's called, you know, buro, right, old, right, like in it, buro is this beautiful word that you, you know, as um, a woman, uh, a woman worker would call her kind of her old man, to, or I'm sorry, her, um, her husband, like as an old man, right, to kind of index, right, his, um, you know, his laziness or his, you know, um, uselessness, you know, around the house or something, right, you know, an old man. So it's kind of a really interesting work, right? 
Um, and so workers, you know, talk about that instead of replanting those buro bushes, right, those old bushes, um, they just would kind of let them go and let them continually be more unproductive. But um, work, uh, management decided to plant in marginal areas of the plantation, right, on the, on the forest edges of the plantation or in landslide prone areas where there's kind of natural water drainage because, right, these are kind of alpine um, slopes. Um, and, 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 and that's, that was, you know, described to me as a biz, as like a proper, as like a total, like a great example of a business practice, right? Because an industry, you know, person, right, a, a planter in the industry, in the industry period would have replanted those, those old bushes in the, in the sections of the plantation, a business plant, a, a businessman planter, right? Um, extracted, you know, cut down forest and planted new bushes instead of, you know, um, it, instead of replanting old bushes, right? When that and that was, you know, not only a business practice, but that was um, a violation of a moral economic relationship, right? Between not only workers and management, right? Between management and the bushes, right? They had an obligation to re, to, to allocate capital to replant those bushes. <laughs> and this sort of shift in practices, this this is a common theme which which runs throughout throughout all of the remaining chapters, I suppose. Um, but let's talk now a little bit what you talk about in the third chapter. You explore geographical indication in more detail. There's a there's a beautiful um, advert that you that you show where Darjeeling tea is compared to champagne and cognac, and um, and I was wondering if you can tell us, yeah, what. In what ways are these similar and how this geographical, I mean, how how does geographical indication bring these things together? Where does it come from, this idea, and how does it play out in plantation labor? The, um, right. So, you know, so GI or geographical indication, right, is this, um, you know, essentially like this, this legal, like, um, you know, de- designation that, that Darjeeling shares with cognac and champagne, right, as you pointed out, but also kind of, you know, umpteen number of cheeses and French wines and right, all of these kind of things that have, you know, kind of that are thought of as um, supposed to be being from a place, right. And be, uh, by virtue of being a geographical indication, it means that that thing, whether it's Darjeeling or champagne or cognac has to be produced in that place, right? You can't um, you can't call tea um, grown in Sri Lanka that just happens to approximate the taste of um, Darjeeling, say for example, Darjeeling. Right? It has to be grown in Darjeeling, right? And there's um, kind of um, pretty soft, uh, you know, uh, adhere or uh, regular. Excuse me, uh, what's the word? Uh, ability to kind of control for this, right? It kind of is, it's done through bilateral kind of agreements, right? There's, there's not, there's not necessarily a GI police that, that kind of follows <laughs> up on this, right? Um, so it's, it's, it, it, it kind of, ex- it's a very idealized kind of, um, system, but, um, What's interesting about GI products, right, whether it's cognac or champagne or Bordeaux, is that they're kind of thought of, they're thought of as these craft products, right, and much more in line with Guffman's understanding of the agrarian imaginary, right, that individual farmer, right, that morally righteous, you know, um, craftsman, right, artisan that has some sort of connection to the thing that they're producing has this kind of historical, right, almost kind of timeless um, relationship to the thing that they produce, right, that this this knowledge has been passed on, it's traditional, right, it's passed on from generation to generation, um, right, that's kind of what we think about as GIs, and that's actually kind of one of the... Um, kind of things you have to prove to become a GI, right? That it is the product of traditional knowledge. Um, so like my, my question in the book is like, so how can Darjeeling tea, right? Which is this 
100% plantation product, pretty new, like, I mean, 1850s, right, sit next to these seemingly traditional products um, that, 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 are, that are produced through artisan, you know, artisan labor, right, and not through, you know, uh, uh, marginalized plantation labor. And, and, and the answer kind of comes back to that third world agrarian imaginary, right? It comes, um, the, so the, the, the plantation laborers, right, those individuals who are just too, um, you know, visible to be ignored had to become those artisans, right? And so what's really fascinating in GI kind of, uh, um, representations of Darjeeling, right? The plantation management is actually quite absent, right? It's it's plantation workers who are kind of the prime movers of, of this agricultural system, right? And they have these timeless... Um, you know, relationships to tea bushes, right? You know, day in and day out, you know, the remarkable kind of advertisements about how the touch of their their hands gives the brew its sweetness and that, you know, they live in this idyllic existence, right, close to nature's heartbeat. And um, the chapter kind of really, you know, is a content, kind of a content analysis of a lot of these advertisements to kind of look at how labor itself becomes um, not only productive of the terroir, right, of the taste of place of Darjeeling, but itself becomes part of that taste itself, right, that the women's hands are part of the taste of the tea. Um, it, it, so it's just kind of, yeah, so it kind of understand, it, like just, it, the chapter kind of just looks at how, um, how Darjeeling tea, how plantation crop, right, came to be thought of as something, right, that, that, that could be, you know, could sit alongside champagne or cognac unproblematically, right? That, that image is kind of, is what I want to unpack. Mm-hmm. And I think another sort of uh, comfortable yet uncomfortable when I, when I started to think about it, when I read your book, is this sitting next to with these two concepts next to each other of fair trade and plantation, because they don't sit very well together in our Western imagination at all. I mean, if we think of plantation, of course, outside of, um, yeah, outside of tea, we, we have all these images of slavery and, and, and or bonded labor, et cetera, and so on. And, um, but here we have fair trade plantations. Um, so I think you could tell us a little bit about the rise of fair trade, how it came to Darjeeling, and what this means for the plantation laborers themselves. Um, right. So, I mean, what, what, yeah, I mean, you point out, I mean, the, the, that, that great paradox, right? Like, so when we think about fair trade and we think about small farmers, we think about kind of revolutionary struggles, we, um, and we, we, we certainly don't think about plantations, right? And so fair trade, um, you know, is, is a market relationship. So like, I mean, what, I mean, in terms of like any kind of fair trade, um, and it kind of exists around two kind of numbers, right? So the, the first is fair trade um, prices, right? Fair trade minimum prices, right? Which is this idea that um, a fair trade product, right? A retailer for um, buying a fair trade product is, some, is supposed to pay a fixed rate, not the market rate for a given pound of coffee or a given kilo of tea. It's a fixed rate, ideally higher than the market rate um, for a given product. And those numbers are kind of set, um, you know, regularly by um, fair trade international and fair trade bodies. And the second is fair trade premiums, right? Which is, again, these these kind of numbers are... Um, uh, are mediated by these international fair trade groups. But, you know, what we think of, I mean, from consumers that I talk to, right, we think about the fair trade premium is this, you know, this little extra bit that we are agreeing to pay as consumers, right, that's come out of somehow kind of attached to the product that goes directly to producers. Um, and, and what, what, 
where the major difference in fair trade on cooperatives to fair trade on plantations rests in, um, you know, the kind of distribution and mediation of that fair trade premium. On cooperatives, um, cooperatives have the ability to see to, to, to divvy it up and do with it what they see fit. On plantations, um, that premium, right, the kind of collected premiums for all the fair trade tea sold, goes into the bank account for what is called a joint body. And the joint in joint body means that management and workers jointly decide how to spend that money. Um, so if you can kind of put yourself in a room um, as if you're a tea laborer um, and, you know, you're making a dollar a day and you know that and you're sitting um, and you're sitting, you know, with your plantation management and your and your plantation owner in the same room. And 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 he asks you what you think you're supposed to, you know, what you what you should do with that money. Um, how much kind of agency, how much kind of power you have to really voice your 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 actual opinion, um, you know, is quite tough. But that's kind of this idea uh, that that fair trade on plantations kind of rests on, right? This idea that workers and management, you know, kind of in this kind of benevolent kind of relationship, right, decide how to man- how to manage the the plantation together. It's it's a very kind of idyllic um, vision of the plantation. And in my experience, right, the joint bodies were relative were really unsuccessful and often didn't meet at all. Um, and 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 again, just just to go back to this like oxymoronic kind of quality of fair trade plant. Plantation, right? Um, fair trade discourse and practice and all of their marketing materials does everything that it can really to kind of take our way or t- take our attention away from the fact that the, that these land tenure rate, uh, agreements are arrangements are plantations, right? They call them estates or more importantly, they call them gardens right? A garden, right? How can that be kind of, that's kind of this apolitical notion of, of what a plantation might be, right? They never, ever, ever call them plantations, right? They, they're happy to call cooperatives cooperatives, but they will never call a plantation a plantation, right? So discursively, fair trade moves us away from, um, from thinking about the kind of historical, um, the, the, the past, right? The, you know, the problem of um, the, the, the relationships of indenture and, and whatnot that go into the plantation, right? And, and, and really kind of what I want to kind of, you know, make you sit with as a reader is to kind of think about how fair trade is a market solution to a problem caused by the market and, and, and how successful can kind of, right, something be, right, that kind of uses the problem to solve uh, you know, uses the problem as part of the solution, right? If capitalism is the problem, is more capitalism the solution, right? So, kind of to kind of think about the basic premise of of um, of, of fair trade. Mm-hmm. One of the nice things about living in uh, Eastern Europe is I don't feel guilty when I go to the supermarket because there's no fair trade products, so um, and I don't. Buy them. <laughs> Now you've talked. We've talked about two types of justice here, and you, you're already hinting about the sort of these um, failures and the failures to, to 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 address some of the underlying problems. But there's a there's a third type which actually struck me when I when I first um, when I first read your introduction and I and I realised that this was coming as a chapter. The third type of justice movement you discuss in your book is that for the demand of uh, Gokaland. This is a autonomous Nepali state within India, and I was just wondering, and this is a the question I had before I read the chapter, and I'm sure a lot of people are at home are, are thinking this, like, how does this relate to tea? Um, right. And and so I put, you know, fair trade and GI alongside of Gorkaland to kind of bring attention to how even in Darjeeling, right, the politicians, um, right, these town-based politicians um, like GI and Gorkaland really, um, you know, have no, you know, concrete vision for how a plantation might actually change, right? Their vision, like the Gorkaland vision of justice is as, 
abstract and as really meaningless to workers as GI and fair trade, right? They're as disconnected to it. Um, and so, so, but, but, but specifically, right, Gorkaland is, um, is the movement to kind of break off um, Darjeeling and its tea producing regions and it's kind of the adjacent region of the doors, um, which kind of sits um, in the state of West Bengal to the north to break off that kind of northern part of North, uh, of north Bengal into its own state, right? A separate Indian state, right? Not, not, not a separate country. Um, and, 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 and the reason for this, right, is that um, everyone I talk to, whether they work on a plantation or not, in Darjeeling feels that um, as, an, as Indian Nepalese, right, they are not considered full citizens by kind of other Indians, right? When they travel, say, to Calcutta or Delhi or, or even down to Siliguri, right, they're, you know, they're, 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 they're thought of as, as not Indian or they're, they're marginalized or they're kind of racialized or they're, they're made fun of um, for, for not really being one of us, right? And so the idea behind a separate state, right, the foundational idea behind a separate state is that by being an Indian state, they would be considered, right, part of um, the Indian nation, right? They would have this kind of place within uh, within the nation that they do not have now. Um, and I mean, and that and that 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 is evocative to both, you know, plantation workers and and townspeople. Um, you know, this idea that. Uh, but 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 for but the Gorkha land project really can isn't going to change anything about the land, uh, the land tenure system on plantations. Right. Nothing really is going to concretely change with Gorkha land. And, I'm t- you know, I talked to high, high, high up uh, political officials um, in the separatist party, you know, and I asked them, like, so with Gorkha land, what would change on the plantation? And it's just like, well, nothing. Right. The owners will still be the owners. The workers will still be the workers. But, like, it'll be in Gorka land, right? This idea that there's actually a stratigraphy of land, right? That there's stuff, like the stuff on top of the land, right? The factories, the bushes, right? That's, right, that can be the owners, right? And that can be owned in that, um, by, by a, a non-Nepali plantation owner, and that's fine. But, like, the stuff under that, right? The stuff, like, deep beneath the actual material soil, right? This meta land, right? That would be Gorka. Right. And that's what's really, you know, that's what's important um, to workers. Right. When they when I ask them, you know, what, um, you know, Gorka land might mean to them. Right. And, you know, in a monetary sense. Right. That, you know, these plantation owners, right, these non-Nepali plantation owners would need to pay taxes to um, workers and right by paying taxes would need to kind of um, acknowledge the fact that, you know, Gorkas are um, are 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 you know, our, our citizens, right. Our Indians are, are people with, you know, political clout. Um, and that, and that's, what's important. But, but I mean, in terms of, you know, what it, you know, what Gorkaland could do, you know, put, put, put alongside the questions of what GI could do and what fair trade could do in terms of, um, you know, a justice, a project for justice. Um, the, the answer is again, really, really little. Cause I mean, and workers are kind of really well aware of that, right? They know that the plantation's really not going to reform. So it's, it's, um, it's kind of, I want, you know, I wanted there to be kind of more of a sense of transcendence, right? Just for my own kind of, um, you know, political sense, right? That there would be some sort of change, right? But workers, um, you know, tempered my own <laughs> dreams and expectations, right? And be like, well, no, like it's not going to change that much. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe a little bit of an unfair question. Um, do you think it will happen? An independent state? Um, 
I mean, I think, I mean, I think it's in the realm of possibility. Um, it would be, I mean, it would be, um, wonderful. I mean, right now, um, I mean, there are states that are breaking off and forming smaller separate states, Telangana, Uttarakhand, Tarakhand, right. And, and, you know, Gorkas are well aware of that. And kind of right now with the, I mean, maybe, I mean, with the political kind of, you know, situation nationally, um, in favor of separate states or smaller states, um, who knows, right. Mm-hmm. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, so that's just I just came into my mind that I thought that, uh, as you as you have been dealing a lot with the uh, with the issue. So, um, like, I just I just wanted to flag up to listeners as well that this is probably the best uh, this the best book we've had on the show in terms of the chapters titles. Each chapter title just has one word: Darjeeling Plantation Property Fairness Sovereignty. So you really you really know what you're getting. It's really really punchy, and that uh, and they're the sort of five chapters we've shot through. And then there's a conclusion, and in conclusion, you ask yourself. A question, is something better than nothing? So that's a question uh, I'll ask to you now. Is something better than nothing? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, uh, um, it's a question I heard all the time or more more framed as a statement, right? Because it was when I would bring up, you know, critical points about fair trade or GI or Gorkaland, right? I was often kind of met with the statement, well, something is better than nothing, Right. Um, in the case of fair trade, that, um, you know, uh, fair trade premiums are going to the to build latrines or going to fix a road that the owner is supposed to do himself, right? Something is better than nothing. At least it's getting built. And I was just kind of deeply unsatisfied with that because I was just like, well, no, like, no, something is not better than nothing. And, and even just saying that something is better than nothing um makes it makes your I mean, it's kind of like the relationship between justice and injustice right um saying that something is better than nothing saying you know making your intervention that something means framing a suitable nothing means means making your something the answer to the nothing right and and something does not replace nothing something replaces another something right there is something there and that and that's what i kind of want to bring attention to in the book right um so i'm not answering the question at all <laughs> and i don't <laughs> and i don't answer the question in the book but i i um, mean the the conclusion really is is to bring is to to bring it, it to to just voice my own dissatisfaction with um development interventions or various agricultural projects that that use that that rhetoric or use that you know that logic right because it's like no there there's not nothing there there is something right in the case of plantations right there's this elaborate plantations labor law that if it were to be followed would make a huge difference in the everyday lives of plantation laborers and laborers know that right so like fair why are we you know why are we looking at fair trade that doesn't actually even work when we have a system that works like is you know maybe maybe you know i would like to call for fair traders to um you know look at labor law and maybe hold plantations first and foremost accountable to the laws that exist as a, and before they kind of institute their own abstract standards so that's what i wanted that that's what that question does Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe, maybe the, the, the answer in terms of yes or no is like, just to say no, like, no, something is not better than nothing because it, you know, that's not a question that I, I want to be asked. And I think that it should be asked. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Now we've really shot through what is a really, um, yeah, what is a really rich book. So I was wondering if there's anything you want to flag up that I've missed with my questions. Oh, um, I, I don't think so. 
Okay, that's good. <laughs> and um, sorry, sorry to send, give you two give you two awkward questions in a row. Then um, I just want to say I just want to say for the listeners at home that I really really enjoyed this book. It's really really readable. I read most of this book um, at strange times of the night, soothing uh, soothing a newborn child, and it's very immersive. You can really get into it and really get into the lives of the people whose stories it tells as well. And um, so I'd really yeah I want to recommend it not just for people who are interested in you know anthropology of labor or these or or even with the specific questions or south asian studies because it's just it's a very readable book and very enjoyable so i'd like to i'd like to recommend it to everyone at home for that reason but now you've finished this book this book's out and i guess you're probably working on new projects so i don't know if you want to tell us anything that you're working on now sure um so i have two new projects that i'm working on um one is about tea one is not um uh i i'm working on a new book on um really broadly on commodities auctions but really i'm using the tea auction and um so tea um in india and elsewhere is auction right it's not a futures market like like coffee or petroleum or non-fat dried milk or and these other commodities that we we may use um it's 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 auction right in these live auctions right which until only very recently um were 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 live and done by um you know individuals who had tasted that lot of tea and and auctioned it um at the same time um but now we have this we we see this instituting of of a computerized system for um the selling of uh, and valuing of tea and so my new book kind of just looks at um kind of um the the move of expertise right you know the construction of colonial expertise around taste um and how um and how that's changing um, with this computerized, this computerized system, right? So using the auction as the, the kind of central central space, but kind of asking questions about taste and connoisseurship and technology and um, and gender, right? I mean, because tasters are all men, right? And um, and generally, um, computer um, uh, experts are, are all men. So maybe it, from this, you know, change from you know. Uh, uh, colonial kind of tasting practice to um, computerized tasting practice, like what's really changing because like one middle-class male subject is replacing another middle-class male subject. Um, so that's that project kind of really in a nutshell. And then um, I'm just, you know, you, you kind of pointed out the, you know, the chapter one is kind of this landscape story of, of my, you know, my, the Darjeeling distinction book. And I had so much fun writing that chapter um, that I'm kind of, I really want to do, um, a book, and, and I'm working on a new project on that's kind of much like much more of a natural history of Darjeeling that kind of looks at um, the issue of belonging, but not just from a human perspective. It's kind of you know each chapter kind of takes a different kind of uh, plant or or thing, right, or animal, right. So it looks at you know um, certain kinds of softwood timber and stray dogs and macaque monkeys and red pandas and kind of reads um, the kind of natural history of Darjeeling, reads belonging kind of through these different kind of um beings wow that sounds fascinating both those projects sound fascinating i want to read about the stray dogs i think i spent <laughs> any time in india is is always fascinated by them um okay well just nothing more to say apart from thanks a lot for coming on the show and thanks a lot for your wonderful book well thank you so much for having me it was a pleasure talking to you okay it's wonderful thanks bye-bye Thanks so much for downloading the new books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook. Today we've been talking about The Darjeeling Distinction by Sarah Besky, a brilliant book that I'd strongly recommend. Thanks a lot for listening. ta